Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. All right, I'm back in plenary session. I'm joined in person by Dr. Kirsten Bibbings-Domingo. Dr. Bibbings-Domingo should need no introduction to this audience because she's active on Twitter. She's uh, the vice dean of this university. She's my department chair of epidemiology and biostatistics. Um, She's a former chairperson of the USPSTF, and she's a professor here at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Bibbings-Domingo, thank you so much for sitting down with me and doing this. Oh, I'm really such a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, (laughs) and uh, hopefully we'll keep each other out of trouble today. Okay, good. (laughs) And I hope you feel that way by the end of this talk. Exactly. Um, so, you know, it's really a pleasure to get to sit down and talk with you. And I have, um, you know, I knew some many things about your career. Um, but before we sat down to talk, I spent some time and I uh, read a little bit more about you. And it's, you know, so much fascinating stuff to cover. And I think the audience, um, you know, is really going to appreciate your thoughts and, and, and really be interested in your trajectory. Um, so I wanted to go back. Um, you know, I know you're a Princeton grad, um, and you, you came out of Princeton, and that was when you moved here uh, to California, San Francisco. Um, you moved here to actually work in the lab. You were a PhD student. And the lab you worked in, it wasn't just any old lab. It was the lab of Harold Varmus um, doing oncogene work. And this would later go on. Um, I think, you know, you, you, it was prior to when you won the Nobel Prize. He, he, I came in September and he won the Nobel Prize in October. Oh, um, correlation wow. is <laughs> not causation. There, but, uh, yes, yes, exactly right. Oh, oh, wonderful. Okay, so I wonder if we'll start there. So, um, you know, I, I know about you that you've lived in different places, but was that your first time in San Francisco? Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm an army brat. I grew up all over. Um, and when I was young, my father was stationed down in uh, Fort Ord, California, which is south of San Francisco. Uh, but it was my first time living in San Francisco. And uh, I had made the decision. It's at Princeton, uh, many of the faculty at Princeton, um, who actually formed uh, the Department of Biochemistry here at UCSF, where they left ah. Princeton to form it. And so uh, from Princeton, many people really thought about UCSF as the place to be for basic sciences, and uh, and that's why it was the right place for me to come after I finished molecular biology at Princeton. Now, when you started in the lab, in your mind, had you envisioned the path that you're going to be a laboratory person? You're going to be doing... Uh, you, did you see epidemiology in your future? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I always... there. Um, when I started at Princeton, the story I like to tell is that the first week at Princeton, I was surprised how many people came up to me and asked me if I was pre-med. And I didn't <laughs> actually know what pre-med was. Uh-huh. And so I, um, I... But I knew they were all a little bit strange. So I basically said, no, I'm definitely not pre-med. <laughs> but I knew I liked doing research. And mm-hmm. research then always was basic science research, right? Um, and most of our universities at the time 
doing research, real research was doing basic science research. And I did that at Princeton. But my my degree at Princeton was um, in molecular biology and public policy. So I, w I also had a degree from the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, because I was very interested in mm. how science influences policy. Oh, so um, so I, I don't know that you can uh, say that I knew I would land up here in epidemiology. There mm -hmm. are many uh, changes along the way. But I did know early on I was interested both in doing research, but also understanding how research influences policy. And that was clear from the outset. And I think, um, you know, the the idea that, well, I don't want to be pre-med, being pre-med was not a an interesting thing to be, but being in the lab and asking and answering questions was an interesting thing to do. That's how I ended up uh, doing my PhD first in the, in the things that I, I knew from Princeton. I see. So there was some inkling there um, by their choice of undergraduate studies. And then why Varmus? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, Harold's lab had had fantastic grad students and fantastic postdocs. Mm -hmm. It was a very friendly lab. Mm -hmm. It was the type of lab that, um, you know, people hung out, people, uh, people uh, talked about science, they talked about the experiments they were doing. And uh, and it was it was a really enjoyable place to be. And and Harold is uh, you know very well read. He's somebody who who thinks about a, a lot of things both in the lab scientifically and outside the lab. And so um, it it was it was a really fabulous place to be. Even though I left basic sciences after I finished my PhD, it wasn't because I was unhappy being in mm, the lab. Being in the lab was terrific. And in fact, the, my second year in the lab, I told Harold that I wanted to go to medical school, that I thought med medicine was going to be a better fit for me. And he said to me, well, but you're you're actually doing really well in the lab. Mm. And I, I yes, I, I like being in the lab. But uh, but I think my my, uh, you have to always know what motivates you. <laughs> you have to know what motivates you when your lab experiments are not working. Mm -hmm. And what motivates me is thinking through the impact of the discovery as mm -hmm. much as like trying to make the discovery. And so I, so I think that that's what led me ultimately to think about something that was more applied like medicine. That's interesting to me. Um, and certainly, I mean, in within medicine, you found yourself in a space, uh, I would say, on, on the applied side of things. I mean, in terms of the work you're doing, it's not work that hopes to have an impact in 10 years. It's work that hopes to have an impact in 10 weeks. Would you say that's correct? <laughs> right. So I think once you move to applied work, right, once you move to say you want to see application, but you still are fundamental. So, so yeah, so um, I think that's right. Um, so I think for me, the way I think about it is... Um, uh, I want to have an impact. Um, I want to be able to see that impact. But I'm still fundamentally somebody who wants to ask and answer questions, right? Mm -hmm. So the way I deal in the world is not um, just being a physician, but also thinking about um, all of the challenges I might have for the patient in front of me, how do I think about that for many, many more patients like me or physicians like me? How could we be doing this in a better way? And some of that starts with how do we ask and answer a question that would help us to think in that way? Mm -hmm. I have to say, you know, just fast forwarding to the pandemic time, it's the pandemic time that's really sort of shortened the oh, like see. desire yes. to say right. like, we do research today, but we really want to have an impact on decisions that have to make to take place today. And right. so uh, that really has accelerated that that desire, that impulse. Right. And um, yeah, I, I tell people that the pandemic has taken 10 years of science and put it in a year. 
You know, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'd that. never used preprint servers before the pandemic. No. I had never done that. And now I think um, one of the publications we're most proud of is one that um, that uh, our, the lead author on it said, I'm just putting it on the preprint server tonight. Oh, wow. And it ended up being, you know, really important. And uh, I, I think in, in spurring a, a conversation um, and you, you realize you, I mean, we can talk about all the challenges of preprint servers, yes. but I, but I think there, yes. um, the, the ways in which, uh, uh, timely, well-done studies influence policy is one I would hope many people, uh, appreciate more, uh, who are, who are trying to do high quality science. Yes. And I think we're going to talk about this study because it's a study that caught my attention as well. And I thought was super interesting. Um, but I want to, I want to touch one more thing. Uh, so then, you know, you finished up in Harold Barmes's lab, you completed your PhD, you went to medical school, you stayed on here at UCSF. Yes, yes. And, and this is the beginning of a long um, uh, time at UCSF. You've been here, you know, you've been here since. If they um, say UCSF, you can stay forever. That's one of those <laughs> things, yes. <laughs> and, and eventually, I mean, you started to do work, I think, more closely to the work you're doing now. Um, you started to work with Lee Goldman, um, who, yeah. yeah, he was the chair here. Um, I spoke to Bob Wachter in an earlier episode of this podcast. Of course, Bob considers Lee sort of a mentor. Um, I've heard you say in some interviews that you consider Lee Goldman a mentor as well. Um, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about what it was like to work with Lee Goldman. Of course, you know, listeners, many will know that Lee Goldman is sort of a legendary figure, I think, in academic medicine. Um, you know, he was the chairman of medicine here. He went on to a career um, in uh, Columbia University. He was the dean. He, I think he just stepped down a year and a half ago after a long tenure as dean. Um, and he uh, has written many influential publications. And by all accounts, I think he was one of those people people think of as a superb academic leader. Um, did you recognize that at the time? Um, and uh, what was it about him that, that drew you to collaborate? Uh, what did you like about that experience? Yeah, so um, sure. So, I, I, you know, I went to medical school here and I did my residency here and Lee was the chair of medicine uh, most of that time. And when I was a fellow, um, he was looking for somebody to uh, to work on his simulation model. I was very interested in heart failure. He put out a call for people, you know, who might be interested. And I, um, I remember... Um, Lee is somebody who, uh, he, he, um, he clearly has, uh, he, he has always had a very clear sense of where he's going, right? A clear purpose, uh, to the work that, that we're doing. And, um, and I, I, I think I was, uh, he is a mentor of mine. He still is. Um, and I have always, uh, appreciated his ability to see very clearly where gaps are and where asking a really um, clear scientific question, research question, can actually fill a gap uh, that exists in clinical practice. That's mostly where we've done our research. When I, uh, when I told, and, and I think that was attractive to me, because again, I think I'm, I've always been trying to think through my research as something that could ultimately have an impact for the way we practice, the way we make decisions about public health. Um, Lee said, you know, I don't do work on heart failure but you will learn something working on this model with me. And I think I learned a lot about simulation modeling and cardiovascular disease epidemiology, but mostly what I, I've learned from Lee is actually how to ask important questions and timely questions and to frame them in a way to help people make decisions that, um, and that that's something that beyond all of the specific and many papers that we've written, I think it's the way of thinking about how to frame questions. That's very interesting. Um... And I guess I, I see now that, you know, I guess uh, Lee Goldman was sort of, uh, you know, he embodied a lot of the things you talked about in the beginning, which was, you know, for somebody who wants to take 
science and apply it. Uh, he, he is that kind of person. He's a pragmatist who was trying to apply mm -hmm. the science of the time to change the practice of medicine um, in a way that's different, I think, than people who are doing pure laboratory work are. So I guess I, I naturally see the, the, um, the connection. I see the similarity. Um, but I guess one thing you said that kind of struck, st stuck with me is that you say he was your mentor. He still is your mentor. Oh, yeah. So I want to, that's something I want to probe. I mean, you know, you're the vice dean of the institution. I guess there are people <laughs> out there who might think, you know, what, do you have room to be mentored at some point? You know, you're, is there, you know, do we all have mentored? So, so I wonder how do you think about that? You still feel like, um, you know, in your career, there are things that you're trying to hone and you're trying to get the input of other people on? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I don't, there's no real, um, you know, the problem is for the fields that we're in is we all get here because we followed the rules perfectly, right? We took all the SATs and the MCATs and everything mm -hmm. at the same time. And we did that. But then we carve out these wonderful positions where really, if you want to have the most impact, you want to understand how to make the right next best decision. And I think people who have, um, who are, are, are clear thinkers of why they've made those decisions and who really understand the landscape, like Lee, you know, sort of understands the broad scope of academic medicine can be really helpful. I think what I've been really fortunate to have mentors like Lee um, and, and others. Um, but what I appreciate most, of, well, I appreciate two things about most of my mentors and Lee in particular is that um, he is a very clear thinker. He has very clear opinions. He's not afraid to tell you his opinions and they're backed up by, um, you know, the way he sees and views academic medicine. Um, but he also is not going to tell me the decision I have to make. Mm. Um, and I, I, I've been very fortunate to have uh, people who um, have very different experiences from mine, who are very willing to share their thoughts on what I should do, but very willing to let me do the thing I'm going to do. Mm, interesting. And I think that's the, that's, the, that's the secret to the types of mentors that we seek out. Oh, yeah. Is that balance. Yeah, myself, I, I, I think that as well. So then you started on the faculty here, and, you, and, and you've been here on the faculty since. Um, the one thing I had difficulty pinning down in my... Um, my investigation. No, my uh, my, yes. my reading. Uh -oh. uh, is, were, you know, were you always in epidemiology biostatistics or did you move around in the university? Did you, how, how did you find yourself in this department? Yeah, super, super good question. Um, so, you know, when I left the basic sciences and I um, started, uh, started in medical school, it was actually clear to me I was always going to be a researcher. And so I, I um, worked in general medicine at the, at the county. I first worked with Andy Beinman, um, who, uh, you know, was a former head of head of ARC and a faculty member here now mm -hmm. at, at Kaiser Permanente. Um, and uh, so I, I knew I was transitioning my research at, into clinical research, population research. Um, and epidemiology biostatistics was always a department that um, really prided itself as for training clinicians to do research. That's mm -hmm. always been the history of how EpiBioStats was there. And um, so when I when I started on faculty, I did my master's here in EpiBioStats, um, and then I. I took a secondary appointment here, even though my primary was has been in medicine since I joined the faculty. And I did it because um, EpiBioStat 
actually, they had a lot of smart people who would just answer and help you think about your questions differently, even mm. over the water cooler mm. or over lunch to say, well, that's a good way. You could you could answer that question using these tools. And, um, and I think it was being in an environment where people who were much more skilled in methods than I was, but who were interested enough in the questions I wanted to answer to help think about how to match methods with the question we were trying to ask that I, I've always loved this department. And so so I spent most of my time on faculty. I joined the faculty in um, uh, 2014 and I, um, 2014, is that right? 2004. 2004, thank uh. you. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, but and have been in medicine and only switched to have my primary appointment in Epi Biostats when I became chair. Oh, I see, I see. So you you've always had, and um, I mean, one of the things you said that struck that sticks with me and something I think that is true, um, and I, I wonder if you think it's true, which is that you know there are a number of universities around this globe that have uh, you know preeminent epidemiology departments. There's no, and this is one of them. But one of the things that I think has been long been distinguishing about this place has been. Um, Yes, we have people who are good at methods and theory, but we have so many faculty members in different, different fields who are interested in pragmatic questions mm -hmm. in their field, and we have a lot of collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes when I read papers from, I'm not going to name any names, but I read papers from papers, and you know, and it's just a bunch of symbols and math, and I, my head hurts. Um, you know, when I read a paper from here, I also feel like often there is a clinical correlate. There's some clinical question that's at the core of the paper. Do you think that that's true about this place? Yeah, I, I, I think... Uh... Uh, so I think what's special about this department is that um, we have some clinicians like you and I yeah. who are 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 interested in the methods and interested in the application to clinical questions, and then we have many PhDs who um, who don't mind talking to to you and I <laughs> essentially, yeah. um, but who are are as interested in um, how to apply methods um, that allow you to make make time. Um, ask and answer uh, questions of relevance to a clinical decision or a po population health decision, a public health decision. And I think that the combination of the two is what makes this place really special because we're ultimately at UCSF, a health science campus. Mm. Everybody here is a health science campus. We don't have the traditional disciplines like you would on a full service university. Um, so a department like ours, if it's going to do its job well, has to both have scholars that know their methods really well are well trained and respected by people who are only thinking of the methods, but who actually can think and talk about the, the wide range of applications to human health where they're really going to have an impact in, in, in that way. While you were doing this, you know, one foot over here and, and one foot uh, back in the general, you, um, you know, you founded something, uh, the Center for Vulnerable Populations at the San Francisco General Hospital. Um, I wonder if if you might talk about you know what what that experience was like. Um, you know when did you when did you know you wanted to work at the general for your clinical work? When did you know that vulnerable populations would become such a I think an important and perhaps dominant theme of your work? Um, and uh, and and how did you decide to create the center and and what went into that? 
Sure. So um, uh, I, I think I've always, um, so San Francisco General Hospital is a, the safety net hospital for the city and county of San Francisco. Um, it's it's where I, I trained and did my primary care residency. It's where even as a medical student, I, I, I did my, my rotations there um, and did some of my early research there. Uh, um, I, I think for, for me, um, I always say, you know, we're drawn to uh, the populations also of patients that we want to take care of, mm-hmm. um, it, that everyone deserves a good doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but, but I think when you decide to go into the many years of training in medicine, you also want to, to think about it in terms of the patients that, that, that you want to be serving and taking care of. And for me, I, um, I probably am more drawn to, to, to taking care of, 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 of individuals where um, their life circumstance has created the obstacles to their health. And it's my job to, with them, help think about how to, to overcome those. Um, that, that, that type of patient can be very frustrating for some people. For me, that's exactly, I know immediately that that's who I'd like to take care of. But I, um, so that's why I've always been drawn to the general. I've been drawn to the general also because it's a very mission-driven place. Like most of the people are there because they choose to be there. They could, they're outstanding clinicians. They could practice other places, but they choose to practice um, mm-hmm. in that type of institution uh, serving those patients. Um, but for me, the, the, the thing that I, I loved about uh, the Center for Vulnerable Populations is that fundamentally, there's still questions about how we do this in the best way possible. There's still questions about how do we, in clinical practice, in a safety net, a res- more resource-limited setting, um, uh, uh, organize our care, how do we deliver our care in the best way possible that has the best impact the best impact possible? How do we think about the policy, since most of our patients are influenced by the world around them in very, um, very important ways that are structural and need policy-level solutions? How do we um, do our research in our clinical environment that also acknowledges the policies and tries to influence the policies that might affect the patients and, uh, and, and do that in a way that also recognizes that people are ultimately patients, but parts of communities and, and thinks about that as well. So CVP is a research center. It's very much about getting research grants, conducting research, mm-hmm. but it is very much about having that research really benefit um, the, the, the patients that we take care of at the general, the communities around the general, and then uh, the impact to across the state and across the country to, to similar patients and populations. And, and I think that that is very much in keeping with the way uh, the, the mission-driven place of the general, but it's very much grounded in the, the type of, of research and asking the questions uh, that, I think, that I think really um, brings out something that, that is very special for the faculty who, who practice and who practice there and who conduct research in CVP. That's fascinating. Um, I wonder in in those first few years. I mean, you came out here on the junior fac. You came out as a junior faculty. You're you're trying to build something um, that is you know different. I think than than what what had existed before. Um, did you feel like that was an uphill climb? Was it challenging, or was this was this the kind of unique place where you had support for that? Um, were those the tough years of the career? You know, how, how do you hmm. think back about those years? 
Yeah. So, you know, if you're very kind to not have added up all the years from Princeton to <laughs> getting a PhD to finally getting a job, as my mother said. The, the one advantage of being old by the time you join the faculty <laughs> is that you're sort of like you're you're sort of willing to you sort of know what you're good at. You know what what is um, meaningful to you in a career um, and you know the types of things you want to construct to make a meaningful career, right? And so I, I think if I had been on faculty a little earlier, I might have spun my wheels in a little bit of mm-hmm. different way. Um, but so for me, I there was never a doubt I was going to be a researcher. That was always crystal clear to me. Mm-hmm. There was never a doubt I was going to be in a place other than someplace like San Francisco General. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once you sort of know that, that that's where you're willing to work long hours, you're willing to do this because you know how to make those two things fit together and you're with other people who push you in the same way, then it's it's just a matter of sort of figuring it out, right? Um, I think we were fortunate to have our current dean, uh, Talmadge King, was the uh, chief of medicine at the time. He very much, uh, you know, was about the mission of the hospital, but also about the academic mission of the hospital to do research. And so he was very supportive in it. And he and then Neil Poe were the ones who um, helped to with some of the money to start CVP. And then we we had we 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 came together, several of us, and we ended up getting a whole number of NIH center grants. And that's actually what formed the NIDUS. And it said, we can be at the general, we can write grants that relate to research about these about the patients that we're taking care of. We can do research that's high quality, gets published in the top medical journals. We can get the NIH to fund us, and uh, and that and we all are very mission driven. That this is about the clinical operations. It is about the policy that affects the health of the patients and communities we care for, and it is about the communities ultimately as well. And the, our that triad is what really defines all of the research that we do at the, at CVP, and uh, and it's fundable and publishable. And that was enough to start to get more people, more grants. Um, probably. So was it hard at the beginning? Probably. But I, I don't know. I, I never really had that much doubt because I probably knew, I knew the things that I was good at. Mm -hmm. And, um, even if it wasn't obvious to other people that, that those two things necessarily go together or would be something you could build a career on. And, um, and now it's fabulous. I don't direct CVP anymore. I, um, uh, it's directed by Margaret Cushell and, you know, she has, uh, grown CVP in this Mm -hmm. fabulous way. She has this fabulous center within CVP that is the Benioff um, Housing and Homelessness Initiative. And so it's really, I think, the proof of concept that you can say, we need to focus on uh, patients, communities, populations that are, are really vulnerable in our healthcare systems and vulnerable to poor health. But there's a body of, of scholarship that we need to produce we want to produce in order to change and influence the way we practice and the influence the way policy is um, is issued that affects the health of individuals like these, um, and that you can build an academic career doing this. You know, it's so interesting to hear you say it that way, um, because, I mean, if I may just reflect on it, I mean, I think, you know, we're in an interesting time in academic medicine where, um, and I think rightly so, people are concerned about... Um, Work-life balance, burnout, um, and and you, you these are these are common sentiments, particularly among junior faculty who are working to try to get that grant. Um, but some of the themes that you talked about um, that I think really resonate with me, um, that I think might be helpful to some others, is the idea that you know 
Um, one, you know, you saw a value and a mission for what you're doing. You're not doing something um, for yourself necessarily. Uh, you're doing something because that will uh, help make the world a better place as you want that to be. And, you know, our lives are short, and I think that's important that we try to push for that. Two, you just do it. You just put your nose down and do it. You do it, and you do it, and just do it every day. You do what you want to do, and, you know, someday, you know, they will they'll they may accept it, you know? Um, <laughs> and then the third thing that I think is the part that um, perhaps, you know, some degree influenced by Lee Goldman was you align the incentives. And so, you know, what you articulated was that it it wouldn't be enough to try to do things to make people better off. We had to prove that what we were doing matters. Mm-hmm. We had to measure it. We had to quantify it. We had to we had to justify it. And 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 in doing so, we would be able to sustain ourselves through NIH funding. Mm-hmm. So what you're do- talking about is a purpose. Um, I think hard work and trying to align incentives so that the wind blows in your sails. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an important lesson because a lot of people in the beginning of their career. Um, especially in, in this current moment we're in, I think, um, you know, obviously, understandably, tensions are high, people are concerned, people are worried. Um, but I think if they go back to those three things, I think it it can benefit them. What do you really want to do in this life? You don't have that many years, you know, it'll pass before it goes quicker. <laughs> Even I feel that. Um, uh, and if you know, it doesn't matter what other people think, if you think it's worth doing, you do it mm-hmm. and then get the incentives aligned. If do, do you agree? Yeah. So yes, you've, you framed it back really, really nicely. I, I do think that I do, I do think that's right. I mean, I'm curious what you think, why you think this time is, is particularly challenging from that point. You said of you're view. not going to get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> You know, <laughs> no, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I would, I, um, you know, I guess um, because I, I don't think there is ever a clear roadmap, and I only know my own experience. I, but I, have, mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time advising junior faculty, advising mm-hmm. fellows, trying to make decisions about academic careers. Um, and, um, and, and I, I always try to think, well, what was different? And some of it I do think was I was older when I started because it, mm-hmm. I, I, it, I, mm-hmm. I, it wasn't. It wasn't hard for me to to know what things were important for me because mm-hmm. I had already gone through that. It also wasn't that hard for me to listen to people like Lee Goldman and mm-hmm. know that their advice was so valuable, but I still had to tailor it to the thing I wanted to do. And so, and some of what you're talking about is aligning incentives. I think sometimes people hear what other people say and say, well, that's what I should do. But that goes back to the first two things that you say. It's like about purpose and hard work. So you still have to always tailor things a little bit so that the incentives align are not something that is the same for everybody, right? Because that 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 alignment right. is in a way that is you have to you have to figure out and right. mold to the very thing you're trying to do, and that requires sort of understanding yourself a little bit um, and being able to take that advice and then say, oh yeah, it will work this way for right. me. Um, I, I think you're right. It it's based on what your specific goal is. I'll answer your question at least partially. What yes, I think is going please. On. Okay, I think. Um, I don't know, and and maybe listeners of this will will criticize me for saying this, but I think maybe I'm old fashioned in the sense, which is that um, I don't know. Um, I think about my parents' generation. I think about my grandparents' generation, and I think about what motivated those people. And I will tell you one thing that I don't think ever motivated my own parents uh, or my grandparents, and that was I don't think they were primarily motivated by their own happiness. Their own hmm. happiness was not their motivation. I think their motivation was something called duty. What does duty mean to me? I mean, duty means that. 
you know, we, we, I, I personally feel as if, um, you know, I'm pretty lucky in this life. I happen to be born in a place where I'm pretty sure I was never going to have, you know, real um, challenges. I didn't, I didn't live in wartime. I never had to go hungry. Um, and I'm a physician, so I probably will always have a comfortable living, no matter how much I, you know, uh, no matter what happens to me. <laughs> right, <okay. laughs> he says to his boss, right? <laughs> right, right yeah. Well, I mean, I, uh, maybe I may have to pivot, you know, but I probably eventually land on my feet. Um, and so, I don't know. And so then I view it as, um, you know, it's not about me. It's about, you know, there, there are ways in which the world is still imperfect. And there are people who know through no fault of their own found themselves in these imperfect circumstances mm-hmm. and the world makes it harder for them. And, and there are ways in which some people find ourselves fortunate and the world, it makes it easier for us to be, continue to be fortunate. And so I think that in our short lives and our short careers, you have a duty, I believe, and I use the word duty, to try to make it better for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that means, you know, that it's not always going to be easy. Sometimes you're going to have to work late. Sometimes you're going to have to stay late. It's not about your happiness. It's not about if you're going to, you know, be out at 3.30 p.m., you know, on a Friday. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're not out at 3.30 p.m. You know, when you start taking care of patients, sometimes you're not out at all. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're calling to apologize to people saying, I'm sorry, I can't be there, but, you know, my patient is sick. I got to do something, um, but I'll make it up to you. Um, and, and I think that one of the reasons why, I don't know, there is this sense is that and, and to some degree, we do a bad job of, I think, inspiring people to find their own passion, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, and to tell them it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. Right. People will criticize you. You're going to stay late. You may not get the grants. You're going to get rejection, but you should do it nonetheless because when you look back on it, you don't want to feel as if you chose the safe thing, the comfortable thing. You want to feel as if you tried to push as hard as you can to make the world better as you see it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you're, you're, I think you're absolutely right. I think the... I think what what is harder to communicate is that, um, and you're right. This is against this backdrop of our of our wringing our hands about work life balance mm-hmm. is. Um, is that it does still though come down to purpose, right? It isn't about just working the long hours, right? right? It is it is that if you have found um, that way in which you can fulfill that purpose, however it is you see that that north star for you, then hard work is probably part of it, right? It is it is essentially part of it. And the duty you describe in the prior generation is because I think people had probably with more narrow sets of of goals and and purposes they could think about. Mm-hmm. Um, a very clear sense of duty. Mm-hmm. Like that wasn't hard Mm-mm. to to imagine from that. And I think for for us though, then we get caught up in the um, in the yes. I mean, uh, you you're right. We we will sometimes have to work really hard. I, for me, the other clarifying thing I just have to say is that I, I you know, I had my son during medical school. Um, I uh, you know, my source of income is an important source of income for our family. And so it was very clear that um, that uh, I wanted a job that was going to be able to to um, I wanted to be an outstanding parent for uh, for our son, and um, and I wanted to and but I could do it in a way if I had a job that allowed me to provide for my family, but also gave me purpose in life. Mm-hmm. And that made all of the things that one does to balance, because we all make these mm-hmm. balanced choices in our life. Um, that made those choices actually also pretty clear for me. So, you know, one of the things that that it, that I think we don't do well is helping people to understand where they how how to, their purpose might 
align with a career in academic medicine. We sometimes don't make that link clear. Or how things that are often perceived as not being great in academic medicine oftentimes have the flexibilities mm -hmm. that are really compatible with the other things that might give you purpose. So for me, um, you know, I had my son during medical school. I, I turns out research is very flexible mm -hmm. in timing. I took full advantage of the flexibility mm -hmm. of, of research while my son was growing up. Um, and uh, the work-life balance for me is like, is achieved like over the course of weeks and months, mm -hmm. not over the course of a day, mm -hmm. because being a parent and being a, a, a researcher, an academic, are both really hard jobs. And figuring out how the balance works when you want to be really good at both of those things means that you work hard at both of those things. And the balance, you know, it sort of adds up over time, but not necessarily in the day. Any given day can feel completely frantic and crazy, oh, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's funny you say that because actually one of my good friends he always points out that um, that the people there's you can all, you could stack up a litany of complaints about academic medicine from you know this that and the other. Um, but he says the one thing people forget is it's the flexibility that yes. comes with the job. You can uh, if you need to, you need to be out for an afternoon. You can be out for the afternoon. Will you have to make it up someday in the yeah. evening? Sure. Um, but I tell people some. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I mean, sometimes I find myself working in the evening. But it doesn't feel like work to me. No, exactly. It, because everything I'm doing is something I would be doing anyway. And then the last thing I'll tell you before I ask my next question is, um, you know, a friend of mine had a recent thought experiment. He said, well, what if somebody gave you, you know, an unthinkable sum, which he, which in this case was $20 million. I said, oh, great. And he said, well, what are you going to do differently? And I said, well, you know, I'm going to, um, I started to think, what would I do differently? Would I change my clinical schedule? Would I change the weeks I'm on service? Would I change my research? Would I just go on vacation? Would I travel? And the more I thought about it, I ended up with all the things that I do currently, yeah. even if I had unlimited money, if I didn't need it. So, so the, the thought experiment was that that's where you want to be. You want to be exactly doing what you right. want, even if, you know, of course, of course, I need to work to you know, pay the bills, um, right? You know, I, so I don't have that much money. Um, but, um, but that's, I think that tells you something about purpose. You feel as if you would be doing it anyway. Exactly right. Ex exactly right. And I, I guess I wish for everybody that they would find that that work that gives them purpose. I do think for me, that is the case. Um, and that, as you said, that means that, yes, we, we sometimes put in the long hours and, uh, um, I, I don't, I, I think, you know, doing that in a way that's sustainable with the other things outside your work, but, but doing that is a very fulfilling way to live your life mm -hmm. because, um, because I, and, and I just hope for people that they find that, mm -hmm. that, uh, work, that profession, that, that position that allows them to do that. That's a good way of saying that if you had the millions of dollars. I think it's like a that. good thought experiment, but then. Don't don't tell all your faculty to do it at once. Somebody, <laughs> somebody's got to do some service around. Somebody's exactly. Got, those are the committees. Um, so I wonder if I could ask you about the USPSTF. Um, you know, of course, the United States Preventive Services Task Force. Um, you were a member of the task force. Uh, my notes say 2010 to 2017. You were the chair for 2016 to 2018. Yeah, I was. I was the vice chair. The vice chair for two years from 2014 mm -hmm. and then to 2016 and then chair for 2016, 2017. I see. And those were momentous. <laughs> those are busy years. Fun times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you landed in a really fun time. Um, you know, I don't know if listeners will know, but of course, you know, um, uh, you know, and many times the USPSTF largely operates out of sight. Their recommendations are listened to and they're very valuable by doctors. I think of all the bodies that issue guidance on 
preventative services, this is the single best guidelines, both by um, virtue of the strength of methods, the impartiality of it, um, the transparency of the process. Uh, you know, no offense to the uh, the the that you know the radio, you know, no offense to the professional organizations, but they tend not to be <laughs> the most impartial um, arbiters of these things. So I like USPSTF, and I always say never do more than what the USPSTF mm-hmm. recommends. But I also say that some patients. You know, they may not want everything, and that's a, that's a discussion to be had. Um, but the reason we were laughing, I think, is that the years you were on, um, they were two very controversial decisions. I think the mammography decision was one, um, which was, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I didn't find it controversial, but you know, I'm an outlier. <laughs> um, you know, that for women between the ages of 40 and 50, you all said it was a grade C recommendation, which doesn't mean not to do it. It means to have a conversation, make the right choice for the person in front of you. Um, for prostate-specific antigen testing, of course, the famous 2012 decision downgraded it to grade D, as in harms exceed benefits. But by 2017, the USPSTF acknowledged with some changing modalities with um, increased use of active surveillance that maybe we should back it down to a C and again make the choice that's right for you. Um, both of those decisions, I think, are incredibly you know reasonable. It's hard to argue that the right choice isn't to have a good conversation with somebody, but yet they were incredibly contentious. Um, I wonder if you might talk about what it was like to be on the USPSTF and what it was like to be the spokesperson for these decisions. Um, how was that? Yeah, great question. So I, so first of all, I like to say that the USPSTF is my is is um, one of those uh, real signature professional experiences. My most favorite volunteer job. Mm. Um, uh, the the fact that that people uh, take this this um, important position on, and I appreciate all of the very nice things you said about it, but and are doing what is a large amount of work uh, for, um, you know, as volunteers, because they believe in the importance of synthesizing evidence and making uh, recommendations uh, to hopefully help clinicians make, uh, understand the evidence and make, uh, understand, you know, what should be the first sets of things they might think of with a patient. Um, It it really is, it it, it was really wonderful just to work with colleagues who were committed to doing this work and, and to do some of this. So, so the the time on the USPSTF actually starts before I joined, which was the famous first mammography decision uh, that came out at the time the ACA also came out and was mm. when the task force was labeled as the death panel, mm. that how could we, we didn't care about women, we were subjecting women to... Um, you know, uh, uh, we, we, we didn't care. We were trying to withhold from women and letting young women in their 40s die because we had given this a C recommendation. Um, I joined the panel, the task force in 2010. I think in 2009, if you listen to my colleagues who were leading at the time, mm-hmm. it was really quite a traumatic time. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes important to remember that the task force existed um, two, almost three decades before that decision. It had existed in only primary care providers probably paid attention to what was going <laughs> mm-hmm. on there were paper books in our that came out you know on a regular basis that had the guidelines and everyone had them in their clinics and used them but in 20 2009 when this whole thing came out and there was this heightened political awareness um, lots of uh, debate discussion animosity around the ACA and the task force issued a recommendation that um, was probably a little bit poorly worded with a C recommendation, mm-hmm. but mostly the task force issued a recommendation that didn't quite appreciate that the world um, was going to pay attention to mm-hmm. something and it wasn't just primary care providers. That I when see. you communicate about this in this way, 
there are women paying attention to it who are patients. There are policymakers paying attention who are going to use it for their own aims. And um, and I think the main thing that happened when I started in 2010 was I joined a task force that really was keenly aware that communication was as much about the job as the actual deliberations about the science. Wow. That that one word that we said, and I'm can't I, I I will mess it up if I remember the word from the 2009 recommendation. Mm -hmm. But it was a word that if you changed it, it said mm -hmm. it put the emphasis on um, on where we wanted to, which was about um, where when evidence is on balance favors net benefit, but not by much. Mm. How do you frame the discussion? Mm -hmm. And what is your actual recommendation to the patient? And, um, and so what happened when I was on the task force, and what was such a fascinating time is, you know, the task force deliberates, we work with the evidence based practice centers to do this enormous synthesis of evidence, everyone should always read this, because it's your taxpayers dollars at work. And it's like, mm -hmm. you couldn't really pay for these fabulous evidence mm -hmm. reviews. This uh, a body deliberating using processes that we've had in place forever uh, to think about how that translates into a recommendation. And then after the recommendations, we voted on them. Then we have the communications folks come out and they say, mm -hmm. how are you going to communicate this? Mm -hmm. And it's done in such a way that... Um, is not well, uh, you, you know, that, that we're trying to sugarcoat something or we're trying to mask something. Sure. But turns out if you can't communicate it, you, you might not be able to have thought that clearly mm -hmm. about why you made the decision mm -hmm. in the first place. And I think it taught me um, and taught all of us a lot about um, both being clear in our thinking and our motivation, mm -hmm. but also that we had to be as clear in how we were going to communicate it, what was going to be the first thing we led with in communicating, and how do we communicate in something that a patient has to understand, a clinician has to understand who's not reading all of the papers, um, that policymakers have to understand. And um, and that that's actually totally valuable experience. Mm. Oh, that's <laughs> It's totally valuable, valuable yeah. experience. The most valuable. Um, so interesting. I mean, I think many many things worth pointing out. But one thing I think it it, it also shows is that, um, you know, once you deploy a cancer screening test and people get comfortable with it, walking it back is very difficult. Um, oh yeah. You know, in a way that's different than you know, for instance, something that we've never adopted widely, which is transvaginal ultrasound and CA one twenty five, which you know. In some, compared to some things we did, did adopt, uh, has comparable data. You know, there's a PLCL study. Um, it is debated. Um, and there's a UK study. Um, uh, and walking something back you've deployed is always difficult, especially when there are many people who may feel as if they owe their health to that intervention. Yes. Whether or not that is or is not the case, people feel certainly feel that way. Um, the next thing I think it reminds me of is, you know, when I was a Many years ago, in another world, uh, you know, I wrote an op-ed and with with somebody, and then we, uh, our introductory paragraph wasn't worded just right, and and we paid a little bit of price for that. And the lesson I learned was that those word choices that you talk about, it's not about obfuscating the meaning of it; mm -hmm. it's about the right way to put it. Mm -hmm. And it might surprise you; I'm still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> still work in progress but i hope i'm getting better um uh but there are some people who are really good at it um yes. and you know i've 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 we've seen their writing this last year and this is a great moment for being good at those sorts of mm -hmm. word choices because people tensions are high people are concerned there are different ideas um and it's not just what you have to say it's how you say it it's absolutely right
That's absolutely right. And especially as you mentioned, it's for, uh, you know, gu guidelines in some ways are, they're so, um, they're so sterile and removed mm -hmm. from the doctor patient relationship. And so, um, so, and how to understand sort of the, the emotion and the personal investment that comes with patients who are sick or patients who are worried about family mm -hmm. members who are sick or who doctors who want to take care of patients in the right way. Um, I think, I think that that language has to both be clear on the science, but also understand the context. And I think um, the task force did at that time, which I, I really love, also did a lot of stakeholder engagement, a lot of mm. talking with people of like, what do you think when these guidelines come out? And I think it gave us much more of appreciation both that we really do want to to speak in a way that um, that is respectful, that understands people's fears, concerns, desires, um, and, and recognizes that and doesn't have this very sterile tone, that we realize that there's a lot of variation in which people hear and understand the words we're saying, mm -hmm. um, and that, that, that our responsibility, and I do think this is really strongly both as somebody who's served on guideline committees, but also as somebody who writes papers all the time, that it is our responsibility to communicate communicate clearly. If our goal is to change or to, uh, to influence the most number of people in a way that we think is compatible with what the science would tell us, uh, it's our responsibility not just to understand and make the recommendation, but also to communicate it effectively, because otherwise that won't happen. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it, was, it, it was really great. The walking back of decisions or the moving forward of decisions, I think um, while the task force has these methods that, that are, are very clear and about the science, I think um, less appreciated and probably not officially stated is, is how much the task force is really about um, understanding what the current practice is at the time. Mm. And so when we met, we could take on the task force, when I was on did 12 recommendations, finalizes a year, 12 recommendations in draft form, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot we're not making recommendations on. And the question is, how do you make a choice? We make a choice what to do where we think a recommendation is going to ch change something. Sometimes that is because people are doing too much of something. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's because people are doing too little of I something. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's because new studies have come out. And so we don't really know what to do. And there's mm -hmm. A whole variation. And so we can't take on everything. Not everything is supposed to be out there. And so I think the, you, the, the prostate cancer recommendation is also both the 2012 recommendation and the 2017 recommendation are about the, the shifting practice patterns as much as they are about the new science. And, and I think, um, you know, it, it isn't the official part of the methods, but I think in the way the task force prioritizes mm -hmm. what they do, it is actually something that that's really important. That's interesting. Um, yeah, no, those that, um, and I wonder if you feel like that experience on the task force, um, was, was good preparation, um, to be a department chair because, <laughs> You also have to think about how you put things. Uh, <laughs> oh, you're going to tell me, did I do something wrong? No, I don't. I don't have any. No, I didn't find anything. No. Well, I think as a, as a you know, mm -hmm. so um, my dean calls uh, calls uh, department chairs middle managers. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case you thought you were, yeah, you know, right. high really, and mighty. High yeah. and mighty. No, um, mm -hmm. which is true. So, you know, the department's chair's job is... 
to um, understand the needs of the department, to manage well, to um, help faculty to achieve their individual goals that they have, mm -hmm. to do it all while balancing the budget, but also to advocate with the dean, but then also to, you know, to whatever the dean wants to, uh, to have the whole school do as the department chair's job is to do that. So mm -hmm. the glories of middle management is <laughs> managing up and managing down uh -huh. and communicating well at all times. And uh -huh. I, I think, I think that is right. I do, I do think the communications piece ends up being important. I have to say the biggest challenge we had this year, of course, was the pandemic, right. was all of a sudden, um, you know, I have to say, um, so 2017, I became chair, you were not a member of our department. Mm -hmm. um, I, I became chair of a department where my, where my, the, many people in the department had started working from home because they didn't like that we had moved to this spot. I see. And mm -hmm. my whole mantra as chair, I joked recently that my whole thing was to get people to come back to work. I see. Because I wanted people to be back to here and working to, yeah. uh, to fill Mission Hall. Yeah. And I, we did a lot to do that. So uh -huh. it was a lot of communicating about it, a lot of events, a lot of uh, other types of incentives to get people. And then the pandemic hit. <laughs> <laughs> And then it was uh, like, okay, yeah, <laughs> now okay. we're not working from home anymore. <laughs> but the amazing thing mm -hmm. was that I think we had created an environment in the department where we we wanted to make sure we could reach out to people. And so we that's when we started twice monthly faculty meetings, mm -hmm. twice monthly all departmental meetings. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that we did at the spur of the moment. But I, I actually think and I, I still watch that, you know, we still have like 170 people that participate twice a month right. on, on these meetings. And, um, you know, I'm. I, I think they've been important just because people can touch base. And I do think there's a way in which this time has been um, in a variety, so challenging for people on so many levels and in so many ways that you can't possibly predict or understand. And knowing that there was a touch point ended up being important. But also, I, I think it then allowed each person who plays those roles in the department as connectors or reaching out to people mm -hmm. to all of a sudden do more of that that, mm -hmm. that they were doing. And so um, I think that that communication piece and the over-communicating probably was even more important during this, this time from a department's perspective. I see. And you know, you, you said you wanted to bring people back into the building. Um, what was your what was the reason for that? Um, maybe it was a little nostalgia because I uh, so uh, so um, when I joined the faculty, uh, Steve Hulley was chair of the mm -hmm. department. He's a cardiovascular epidemiologist, also a mentor of mine. And Steve was all about always making sure that there was coffee in the coffee maker, mm -hmm. and always making sure if we could serve uh, fruit or something to eat, that th there was al it was always going to be there. Of having wine hour on Friday mm -hmm. afternoons, he was very much about those things that bring people together mm -hmm. and the informal science discussions and um, and I think I I that's that's why I love this department it's what I wanted to have a little bit more of mm -hmm. where we have faculty who they're really just outstanding in so mm -hmm. so many ways and I and um, and and really fun to talk to and I think that that was a little missed as everybody was working from home and that's mm -hmm. why I wanted them to be back I also think the department um, because for a whole variety of reasons including we're just a complicated campus. Um, we have a fabulous department and I wanted more people to, I wanted to flex our department uh -huh. a little bit on yeah. campus yeah. too. And right. some of that just means you have to have people around who yeah. are going to show up at different meetings. I, uh, I appreciate all those sentiments. <laughs> and I, I feel the same way actually that, um, you know, I think um, my nostalgia is the same way. I've worked in places that didn't have the collegiality and did. 
And I think I, I don't, it'd be actually interesting to study, but I think that when, if one were to look at um, faculty turnover and things like that, I suspect that actually these kinds of things actually play a big role in making people feel like this is a, a part of a community and, and a home. And then the other thing I think is, and I think there is some data on this, um, collaborations that were unanticipated are much more likely to happen when you are physically um, bumping into people. And in this world of ideas, I think that's important too. Um, so I, I, I hope we. Yes, you know, I think some crossed. of my best papers I've written have been things that I, 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 I heard in passing, or I was having coffee, or I, you know, things people I, I didn't ever think I would collaborate with. They've just happened. We all have had that experience mm -hmm. where it's just, and I guess for me, I, I because I'm a generalist, so I, I, I tend to think this way mm -hmm. as opposed to you know inward. That um, I, I'm always most interested in things that connect one thing that I wouldn't have thought about to something else that I'm thinking. About. About. And that only happens through those um, types of random interactions that are more likely to happen when people are in person. So Absolutely. Um, so I wonder if we could talk a little bit about some of the more recent issues. Um, your paper on, on, on excess mortality with SARS-CoV-2 in the California data mm -hmm. set. So this is, I, I assume this is the one you were alluding to about the preprinted paper that was uh, very impactful. Yeah, we we so um, so uh, when when the pandemic hit, I I'm a primary care provider. You know, when the pandemic hit, I said I'm not an infectious disease epidemiologist. I'm going to be a doctor because mm -hmm. that's what I can do during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I can do that. Um, and uh, and I um, the the first time I was asked to sign off on a death certificate, as you know, we're oftentimes asked mm -hmm. to sign off. And, and as a primary care provider, I'm asked to sign off from patients who died outside the home where I really have no idea why mm -hmm. they died. And I all of a sudden realized during this pandemic that I really didn't have any idea why people were dying. Right. But as is often the case, we have to sign the death certificate so that families can bury their loved ones. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it got us thinking that we really that that there might be people who die of things other than COVID that we might want to know about. Mm -hmm. That there might be people who die of COVID but might not be diagnosed. And then there's a lot of COVID deaths. And studying excess mortality would be a good thing. And mm -hmm. so we probably in April, right at the start of the pandemic, um, requested the death records. And we've written now a series of papers mm -hmm. on excess mortality in California, mm -hmm. basically taking. Um, mortality rates uh, in California week by week on all the prior years and saying for any given week, how mm -hmm. much more, how many more deaths happened during that week than one would anticipate based on the prior, uh, the prior years. And uh, we, we have a series of papers and now a series of great collaborations with great set of research scientists and postdocs in the, in the department. And, um, and it is the, the scientific work I've been doing during the pandemic that is related, but it's also turns out to be um, the scientific work that that ends up during a time when you have a new pandemic and you need to learn new things uh -huh. that influence how you make the next public policy decision also also um, work that that does have an influence I think on the larger discussions which I've also appreciated yeah I've, I've found these papers very interesting and um, you know the one I was le reading had a lovely figure of week by week mortality uh, benchmarked against uh, uh, pre-covid times to show literally you can watch the pandemic or the impact of the pandemic spread through California. Um, the table I think that got a lot of attention was the table on the, the relative risk of different occupations. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a, a, a sobering reminder that, um, you know, even though pandemics affect 
no one is immune from a pandemic. Um, no one is uh, uh, can uh, is free from it. Um, that there are essential workers who are at substantively higher risks, and some of that work is work you don't see or think about. Um, I'm remembering your table. One of the things that always jumped off at me was um, the people who are cooking our food in the kitchens. Mm-hmm. We're often cooking in close quarters, may not have paid sick leave, may have to come in if they're fevering um, or feel compelled to. Um, construction work, um, which is you know still going on to some degree. Um, there's been you know different articles about people remodeling and things like that. Um, also a risky a risky line of work. Um, I wonder what you. I mean, and then I think the reason it got so much attention is that it reminded us that. Um, you know, when you really want to fight a pandemic, you have to put resources to the most vulnerable communities. Um, so I wonder how you felt when you first saw this table um, uh, and w- what thoughts you have about it now. Um, I think it did impact how people think about it. It was a very impactful table. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we were just looking at excess mortality, but it turns out there's a lot of things on the death certificate. And um, and as we were looking of how we might structure structure analyses, we talked to one economist and he said, you have occupation data, you have to go do that. He says, no one is publishing about occupation. We had all worried about essential workers, praised essential workers, mm-hmm. cheered essential workers. Um but but no, we, we just don't collect data on occupation very in, in a systematic way. Many people who are worried about occupation and health have have uh, have noted this. So um, so we we took the occupation fields and we we focused on the essential worker categories. Mm-hmm. Um, those the, they're sectors that actually the governor declares that you know you don't have to even though we're shut down, these people can work. Mm-hmm. They're allowed to work. They should go out and work. Um, and so we took those and, and just uh, we classified first by sector and then by individual job types. And um, I think what was striking to us was, um, you know, the, the, the sectors, healthcare not being as high as everyone had thought, um, the sectors being very high, food and agriculture, manufacturing, facilities, transportation and logistics, and then the specific job types. And I think you're right, that table got a lot of attention because you look at cooks at the top mm-hmm. and construction workers. And I think it I think the reason it got attention is because we had come to a point in the pandemic when we were going back and forth between is it the lockdown or or should we open up? We should be able to open up. And of course, we uh, we've always had the discussion, you know, the very vulnerable communities that are at risk for uh high COVID-19 also are at risk when we're shut down, right? Because they they're also uh when they can't work and um mm-hmm. But but every way in which we open up has to understand that my desire to go out to a restaurant also means that the people who work in the restaurant are at risk. And they're in risk of ways that we had not really started to talk about because of the multiple people outside who come into a restaurant, because people who work in the back as cooks are working in closed environments where the masks are often off, mm-hmm. because they're people who don't have sick leave, mm-hmm. who are working for employers that oftentimes aren't following the rules for, um, for COVID or for just protecting workers, um, um, and uh, and that and people who, when we've run we've run testing campaigns within the city, uh, we've had construction workers. Um, 
people who are day laborers drive by our testing sites and want to get tested. And then someone else will call them back in and they're like, no, we're not getting tested because, and you can see it's, it's always the calculation of, well, I'll have to take off of work if I test positive or someone else will know. And you can't manage a pandemic as long as that is the thing, right? right? It is never about lockdown or opening up. It is about protecting the people as you're opening up, the people who need the most protection, who are most at risk for mortality. And if you look the table, the table, what is most striking is not just the cook at the top and the construction worker is that these are mortality, these are excess mortality compared to prior years of 40, 50, 60% higher than what we would expect among people who are 18 to 65. Mm, These are not the oldest old. Mm -hmm. These are the the working age population of California. And um, I think it's really been our failure to... um, to really look that in the eye and understand then the policy implications that we can open up, actually. It isn't that hard to think about how to open up, but opening up always means protecting these groups that are most vulnerable and ultimately then also contribute to the ways in which we continue to have surges afterwards when we fail to do that. It's it's, uh, unfair to these individuals and communities, and it's also just not the greatest way to manage a pandemic. Right. But this is the paper that my, you know, mm-hmm. the um, uh, Yehang Chen, who's a, uh, a graduate of our PhD program, a research scientist here, he said, you know, I'm just going to put this on the preprint server. <laughs> and I said, okay. And so he he put it on the preprint server. And, you know, it's the power of preprints, the power of social media, mm-hmm. um, choosing a question that was timely. And it turned out being timely because it was about discussions about essential workers. It was about discussions about the absence of OSHA and the other um, regulatory bodies that are supposed to protect workers, and also about how workers get prioritized in uh, the vaccination campaigns. And I think what you see in California is we eventually abandoned most of the essential worker categories, except for the one that was on the top of our list. So I think it added enough attention and enough focus uh-huh. that um, that made it into the, to the prioritization for vaccinations. And it has been a part of other legislation that um, has continued now to say, well, what are we going to do to protect workers as we, you know, as we continue in this pandemic in some way and probably will need to prioritize testing and sick leave and other types of things like that. Yeah. And um, and it was just, I mean, I don't know, I was a big fan of the paper. And of course, I've talked a lot about it um, because I think it was um, a reminder, of course, that, um, you know, one of the ways in which you fight a pandemic is to do this kind of research so you can learn where is the problematic places, exactly. what, where do you need the most uh, help and resources. I wonder if I might ask you related to this, I think, is the question of disparities. And we've seen profound racial and socioeconomic disparities, I think, in who gets sick, in the outcomes. Um, we're, we may be seeing some disparities in how vaccines are rolled out, which zip codes are getting access first. Mm-hmm. Um, you're somebody who has uh, long uh, had a commitment to high-quality disparity research. Um, and, and you've been, you know, of, uh, and you've commented on these issues. I wonder if you might um, tell listeners a little bit about what are the sorts of issues that you think most about in this space? Um, well, you know, we're at different phases in the pandemic, right? And at, at, at different phases, that you need to be able to to do things in that are 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 
ideally data-driven and relevant mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to the pandemic. And um, <clears throat> I, uh, I, I think the challenges as we think through um, through disparity. So people who study pandemics know that you're always going to have the most vulnerable in your society are at highest risk. Those who have the least resources, whether that is money, whether it is job protection, whether it is knowledge, whether it's social connections, they're always going to be at risk. I think the thing that has surprised me during the pandemic um, is not that we saw disparities, but that we couldn't pivot our public policy to Mm. actually say, well, we're not going to distribute things equally. We're going to actually put more testing in these communities, both because that's where the virus is. That's who's getting sick. Um, And because this is a community that's been devastated. And because like, if we don't do that, like it's eventually going to lead to surges in other parts. And I think, uh, I think a lot of the research in this way has been to try to to turn our attention to um, how this is about the needs in particular communities, but also Um, why it has clear policy relevance for the overall management of the pandemic. And um, I think, I I think that the, you know, where, where the biggest gaps at this time in terms of, of research, I think it's still striking to me how we have gaps in data collection that prevent us from really understanding how to target Mm -hmm. our interventions in the best way possible. I just finished talking to a reporter about how people aren't getting second doses, but we have very, the, the data is not complete on vaccinations. It, the data collection on race and ethnicity or location or language um, is not complete. And so when we move into this point where we're just above 40% vaccinated, um, every next person you're going to try to vaccinate requires knowing where they are, knowing who they are, knowing how you can uh, tailor a message, uh, find the trusted messenger that can reach. And the the ways in which we live in this very data-free zone is just, it's frankly outrageous. And it's outrageous that we it is, was this way before the start of the pandemic and is this way uh, throughout. We get distracted by by lots of things that are are probably not as relevant and um and um you know as as much as the the pandemic has been about um this fantastic uh high quality research there's also been a lot of nonsense mm-hmm. out there that has also distracted a lot of people and things that are 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 ultimately are ultimately not important. My big concern with with disparities, of course, is that the it, it is absolutely about the pandemic, and it is also about the fact that that these same communities are also affected by poor health before the pandemic. They will be affected by the impacts of the pandemic, the of COVID nineteen that might be have devastated a community and the economic consequences, and that sits against the backdrop of poor health and you know uh, inadequate healthcare during this time. And I think for those of us who want to do this work well, we'll want to take some of the lessons of of doing this and then think about how um, they lead to not just the crisis interventions, but the longer term structural interventions. Mm. And that's going to take that's going to take a lot more work. And I hope I hope policymakers and politicians and people recognize that that is what the work that needs to be done in the future. you know, when I look at this space, uh, I see, you know, I also see economic relief that was passed, I think, early on in the administration and including $500 million, $500 billion, uh, you know, for small businesses. Um, we also don't have a sense of who's getting the economic relief. And I have my feeling that it's the rich get richer. And, you know, I, I, that's my that's my feeling. And I think there is some preliminary data to show that. Um, but the other issue that I that comes to my mind, in addition to the many 
important issues you've raised is the issue of school opening or closure. Uh, you know, I think I think I I'm actually at a place where I'm saying, okay, if somebody feels differently than I do about school reopening and closure, that's fine. I have my views. I've stated <laughs> <do>? many times. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wasn't aware. I <laughs> <laughs> may have tweeted a few tweets. But um, uh, but I guess I would say that to me what's troubling is that no matter what one's view is on the issue, one has to be concerned if the only kids are in school are wealthy, yeah. predominantly white kids. That has to be – somebody has to say, okay, you're either open school or you're closed school, but you can't open in such an unequal yeah. um, way. Um, and, and that to me has been troubling. Um, and we have an article actually about school hesitancy. You know, we talk about vaccine hesitancy and whether or not there is an uh, interaction between race and socioeconomics and the real, and the decision to get a vaccine. And there's some, some polling suggests that's not the case. Um, of course, some of these polls are the same polls that – have been inaccurate in the recent past, <laughs> um, in part because, you know, some people don't answer phones, um, uh, 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 including me. I, I certainly don't answer calls. I don't know. Um, uh, but there is uh, some evidence uh, that's emerging around when schools do reopen. Is there going to be differences in, in, mm-hmm. in who are willing to send their kids? And I think that's an issue that's important that we need to, you know, um, address and, and make sure that um, everyone feels comfortable sending their kids back to school when we know that schools are are safe uh, because schools provide an immeasurable, immeasurable value to children. Um, I wonder if I could ask you one question, which a lot of the things you've you've said bring me to, um, which is, and I think, and I, this is also one of those things that has changed, like the burnout issue, like the um, the wellness issue, which is the line, the distinction between advocacy and science. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's something we all walk. Uh, we all fight, well by we all I mean you and I and people like do, who do mm-hmm. the work we do, which is that you know I guess if I'm perfectly honest about myself is am I am I a pure scientist or a pure advocate? I, I'm something in between. Mm-hmm. I have issues I care about. I have uh, ideas that I want to advance. I want to see the world be better and fairer by the yardsticks that I have considered to be important. At the same time, I'm an empiricist, and I hear that from everything you've said. You're an empirically driven person. You want to measure things and quantify it and know what works and not pursue things um, that are ineffective. Um, And then, of course, there's a new generation of people coming into this field all the time, and they may have their own balance. How do you define that balance for you? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, um yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great question. And I think those of us who work at this intersection always have to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves the, those questions. Um, one of my colleagues says that, you know, sci- scientists make the stones and give them to the advocates to throw. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that where you so so I um, I think it's my responsibility for myself personally and the, the purpose driven work that we've talked about to ask questions that are important uh, to moving mm-hmm. uh, the health, um, moving health in the way that, uh, that the, or address a gap that moves us towards better health. Um, and so uh, I, that, that is my responsibility to do that. Be, I am um, particularly driven uh, to understand the health of, of, uh, um, of communities uh, that are have longstanding histories of oppression, um, of structural and social biases uh, that that are major factors that contribute to to their poor health. That's the realm in which I'm always going to be asking my the questions, mm-hmm. and I want to ask the questions in a way that forces a decision to try to improve that. 
but I have to be a, a little bit objective. Um, objective, what does that mean? I have to be willing to to say that my particular solution to the problem might not be the right one and mm. might not be borne out by the evidence, right? That 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 is part of doing the work, that my role in the complex landscape of people who are trying to make change is to actually be the person who, uh, well, you can trust that graph that I'm putting out there, that you understand the methods, that I'm going to put them out there for others to critique and say whatever. Um, and so that people have confidence that if I've arrived at that conclusion, that we pretty much can judge those methods. Um, I am going to be an advocate for improving health um, and making sure that that's equitably distributed, but not always necessarily an advocate for a specific way of doing that unless I can really understand how to do that. And if I don't really understand how to do that, I need to be generating more evidence to help figure out if that's the right way to do. Um, I have to figure out how I can disseminate my work to others who are going to be advocates, to others who can take the form that I've done that in and actually use it in a timely manner to say, we need to introduce this new legislation, or we need to overturn this law, or we need to change this clinical practice. So dissemination becomes a responsibility. And I um, I, I think that line is sometimes hard to walk, mm -hmm. but I, I probably settle back in for the fact that I am I am a scientist, I am a physician, but I am also an educator. And my job as an educator is to actually talk about the things that I read, the things that I have studied myself, and to talk about them in that way. You started by talking about the, the school hesitancy. That's a really great one where... Mm -hmm. um, it is very clear it is terrible for kids to be out of school. <laughs> it is very clear that the that we had massive inequalities in education, massive inequalities in poverty uh, in during childhood um, that are playing themselves out in how schools have reopened. Um, does that mean people have then jumped to say, well, why are why is everyone not rushing to jump back into schools? Like that is itself another complex thing that right. we need to try to understand and right. get to. It doesn't make the first part wrong right. or the first part something we shouldn't talk about, write about, and whatever. And I think, you know, I think for for people who who, um, you know, I, I like to say for, for people who are hesitant, whether it's the vaccine or the testing or, or going back to school, I mean, when you look at the massive disparities in COVID-19 and just focus on COVID-19, it's pretty reasonable to believe that, to be suspicious that anybody's new policy intervention is out to help them if you're mm -hmm. a member of these communities, of right? Because, mm -hmm. the you know, these are communities that have been really devastated and that comes on a history of and a legacy of that happening the year before the pandemic, mm -hmm. the month before the pandemic. And so I think, you know, we 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 take hesitancy that I don't love that word mm -hmm. because it it doesn't help us to understand what are the things behind it, many of which are perfectly rational and justified based on the evidence. <laughs> Right. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to figure out how to get kids in school, because there is no doubt, as you said, that kids should be in school. Yes, I've been banging on that drum. Um, and I think you're right. And I think you put it well, which is that, um, yeah, the pe one of the things people say is, well, we, you know, we open the door and nobody wants to come. And I was like, well, you know, you scared everyone. Yes. <laughs> you scared, scared everyone <laughs> a little bit. And now I'm a little yeah. – and yeah. yeah, I wouldn't trust you either. Okay. Um, um, but one of the things you said um, – 
is something that really connects with me, which is, you know, I often get young people who come and seek me out for whatever reasons. They're misguided. They're lost. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why they seek me out. But they ask me, you know, they're, they're at, young people are great. They have passion. They know the world is unfair and they want to make it better, you yeah. know. And that's why, I, you know, that's why I think, you know, it's it's the youth that will save us in, in that sense. They bring enthusiasm that those of us who've been around the block a few times know that real change is difficult and it's hard and you have to push against things and you have to compromise and you have to find the way to get real change. And it's not always a slogan. It's not always, you know, what I think the young bring the idealism and, the re- and, and people with more experience um, bring the reality check and also the pragmatic way to do it. Um, but I tell young people who want to be advocates for whatever issue that they so choose, um, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, uh, sort of that, 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 that story of Cicero, that when he wanted to be a great orator, he would put the pebbles in his mouth and practice giving speeches with pe- mm-hmm. so that when he would take the pebbles out, he would be really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and what does that mean? And I think the analogy is the pebbles are the methods, the science. Um, what do I mean by that? I mean, you you, mm. you 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 may be young and you may have an intuition about how the world is unfair or unjust. Your intuition may in fact be right. Mm-hmm. But if you want to make meaningful change, go out there and learn the best methods you can learn. Be the best at it. So when you come and you show people why it's a problem, you document it in the most systematic way possible mm-hmm. with the most unimpeachable methods. You show them precisely why this is the determinants of what matters and why your proposed solution will in fact ameliorate the problem. And if you want to win the game uh, because you care deeply about advocacy, become a scientist and bring that to it because there is no better tool for the work of advocacy. And everything you tell me, I mean, I feel like, uh, do you feel similar? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, that Well, that's, that is for, that, that is absolutely the case for me. Um, uh, and th- that is the way I view the world. I, I also think that this is ultimately a team sport and mm. not everybody's passion is, is to, is to sit there and, and, and look at all of the SAS output to, to understand <laughs> like why mm-hmm. this, excess mortality means something um and and uh and when i talk to young people I, I you know i try to say you know this this is very much part of as you're saying long lasting change that this is to understand why things work also understanding why things work in that way is through a scientific lens, but also through um, the ways in which um, people collectively make decisions, the ways in which, um, and at, and it's at that intersection that I think science and policy is made. Um, and I think for a young person, it's to understand where their skills and passion lie, where is their, their, their purpose-driven work, where does that lie, and where does the thing that they want to work in that is going to keep them up at night and they're willing to work the long hours like we talked about. For me, it is absolutely the science. Like I want, I want the, I want to go back and make sure that 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 table really is like it really has the data. I, I worked with, I, I had the good fortune earlier this week to work with um, somebody who's a Nobel laureate, uh, who is, is a very famous scientist, and uh, and who's somebody who's very clear on on a particular set of uh, of decisions, um, and watching. Uh, this pair of scientists go over a set of data so like to turn it over so many times um, before they were willing to say that this is where they would put their nickel down on this. Mm-hmm. It's just that that is, I, I think, what draws me to science. Um, and this is a, a pair of scientists that that really um, 
you know, their work has been so impactful in the policy arena. Mm -hmm. And uh, but but you see you you watch people like that who, who work and how uh, how they appreciate how meticulous the application of the science is because the stakes are so high mm -hmm. because they want that that paper they write that finding they want to put out there to actually change the way people people work the way people make decisions uh um I, I think that that is what drives me that is what i hope we can you and i can continue to communicate to people who want to pursue careers like this because i i, I think that is what's so necessary because in the end we have opinions on what we'd like to make better but how we do that i think um uh, you know, we still, there's a lot to learn. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's the, 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 the most important lesson that I wish people take away. I wanted to ask you, and I know our time is, oh yes, our time is almost up. Um, this is the last question. Um, the last question is about, um, and it maybe is a spinoff. Um, it's about leadership. And I guess I wonder if you, I don't know, um, you know, you're, you're, you're a noted academic leader. Um, you you surely you surely must have had um, you know opportunities to to go to all sorts of places. Uh, if you stayed here, um, you've become uh, you know one of the, the 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 leaders of the institution. I wonder how you think about um, those decisions about about leadership. If you have a philosophy of leadership, if you think about it uh, explicitly, if it's something you feel um, like medicine is you know you're still developing your your style. Um, and 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 what made what drew you to it and um yeah and how and how and how you find it uh right so uh you know there we talked about one of my mentors lee goldman earlier on you know lee is somebody who who grew up in sort of that very um all of the great traditions of academic medicine where if you if you love academic medicine and you stay in it you you sort of know what the leadership path is right you become a division chief you become a department chair you become a dean that's like how you do things uh, that isn't the tradition i that I I actually saw myself in, um, uh, uh, and so when it came time when, for me to think about what did I want to do next, I was like, well, that is not something that actually resonates for mm -hmm. me. And I think this is uh, for many people for whom academic medicine isn't sort of like in their blood or uh, who don't necessarily see people like them in different leadership positions, I think have similar experiences. I think it wasn't until somebody said to me, um, well, uh, do you have opinions on about how you would make your institution better? Do you have things that you would want to change on how for faculty that would make the work they want to do better, that, that would enable you to do better research or have a greater impact? I have a lot of opinions about that. <laughs> Turns out I have a lot of opinions. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And then I was like, oh, uh -huh. oh, okay. So you mean in a leadership position, then I all of a sudden both have a platform that people mm -hmm. will listen to what I have to say. I might have some more resources to actually uh, craft things and mold things in a way that I think could have a greater impact. I think if we, if we, if you um, phrase leadership in an acad academic leadership in that way, it all of a sudden it's a very compelling thing to do. Mm -hmm. It also then is very clear, like why you're going there. So it isn't about you know, like I have now this, you know, I'm a middle manager. I'm very clear <laughs> on like there, there's nothing glorious about this. But it is the opportunity to try to shape things that I think. Um, that I think could be better. I think my leadership style has generally been that um, 
is really influenced by many people around me that who I admire and watch them work is about allowing people to uh, rise to their highest uh, and achieve their own highest aspirations and maximize what they can do with their talents and to create an enabling environment to do that. And it's probably how I've approached everything from founding the co-founding the Center for Vulnerable Populations to this leadership job to, you know, I'm the the vice dean's position that I have for population health and health equity is a new position. It was, uh, so I'm the inaugural holder of that position. And, and in all of these, what I want to do is create environments where others can can thrive and do the things that they want to do. I usually have a strong idea of like the impact I see the unit that I have like ultimately playing. Um, but I, I don't have a lot of strong preconceptions on how exactly we're going to get there. I mostly want to structure a way in which to maximize the the talents uh, around me. And I, you know, I, I, I feel very fortunate at UCSF because we have many people who think similarly. And so uh, so the people who've, who've uh, you know, given me these leadership positions also have similar philosophies. And I think that that has created an environment and why I, I like UCSF in, in a lot of ways, because it enables a lot of things uh you know a, 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 a similar philosophy i think has enabled many people to thrive in this environment and uh yeah we'll see how it goes well <laughs> i think it's going well um and I, I lied to you. One last question. Uh, you're on social media. You're you're active on Twitter. Um, <laughs> oh you know. no! You're going to get us both in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. I don't know how much. Is, is there a basement to where I met? <laughs> I'm already on the ground floor. Um, so I guess I'm wondering. Um, I don't know. How do you do you do you view? I mean, I think there's a range of views. Actually, the more I talk to people, um, professors, and uh, uh, I think there's a range of views about whether or not. And my own feelings, I think, have shifted. Um, is it a tool for good? Is it a tool for evil? Um, you know, uh, how do you, I mean, you use it, uh, I think you use it very, um, um, you're, you're very focused and disciplined. You're, I think you're a very disciplined user of Twitter. Um, you use it to get um, your message across. Um, you're not dragged around to things that outside your message. Um, um, how do you think about it? Do you enjoy using it? Um, what, do you, what do you recommend to people? Yeah, yeah. I, I like to say that I, you know, I got to Twitter because um, to spy on my teenage son when Twitter <laughs> was a thing back uh -huh. in the day. Um, I'm an introvert who never thought I would like something like Twitter. Mm. Um and uh, and mostly, you know, early on used it just to amplify other people's work, amplify my work. Um, I think during this pandemic, the, Twitter is like extraordinarily useful. Uh, people oftentimes ask me, well, how you're on Twitter all the time. And I'm like, well, I consume so much of my, of my scientific, uh, the scientific literature on Twitter of the news media on Twitter, that that is why I'm on there. And I think during the pandemic, when something was moving so fast, uh, um, you know, understanding how other people who I respected were reacting to the literature, knowing papers when they first came out, understanding new policies as they were coming out and people's reactions to them. I, it's hard to imagine that you could really have, have, um, engaged with the pandemic in the way this health crisis played itself out without something mm -hmm. uh, like like social media. And then when you realize that that also has the added advantage that you can add your voice to influence um, and to to amplify in a way that can get the attention of other people in a way that that ends up being important. I, I think 
I think I think it's an it's a really important tool. Um, I, I I think the I think the, the challenge is how, of course, always. So for me, you know, I'm an I'm an introvert. So engaging with other people, not something I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. It's just not my style. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, you know, I, I would I would have to spend too many hours trying to craft the 280 mm-hmm. character thing mm-hmm. that like I would get nothing else done. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not discipline so much as it's probably fear and not my personality. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just. it's just not compatible with it. I mean, I do think as an, as institutions, we, you know, we, we have a lot of goals as institutions. We have the outward face that we want to have. And so what does it mean when all of our faculty are saying all sorts of stuff that's getting people (laughs) upset and making people think that that's related to like the institution. So it has an institutional challenge, I think as, as, Clinicians, when we're trying to message one thing um, and be clear and endorse the messages that we want everyone to follow, but also have the opinion in a larger scientific debate and you watch it playing out in real time, um, I, 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 as a scientist, think that that's all valuable. But as a public health communicator, sometimes that's challenging. Um, but I don't think in a way that we can change it. And I think... I mean, Twitter is a part of the dominant way we communicate. Mm-hmm. And so it's important for us if we have if we want to be part of these discussions to use that platform in the best way mm-hmm. that we can use it. Nothing is either good or bad. This is just how we use it. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're always learning and evolving. That's well said. Dr. Bims Domingo, thank you for sitting down and doing this. I've taken up so much of your time. It's been a real pleasure. I think listeners are really going to enjoy this. Um, this walk through, uh, I mean, so many topics of so much interest. So well, thank, thank you. you so much. And thanks for hosting such a great discussion. It's, uh, I, I think these discussions are the ones we want to be having. So we continue to push ourselves and our fields forward. So absolutely. Thank you. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.